Welcome back to Tech Enabled, an AI podcast on technology, public policy, and economic opportunity. I'm your host, John Bailey. Einstein once said, if I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend 55 minutes thinking about the problem, five minutes thinking about solutions. The Governance Lab is helping organizations think about their complex problems. We are joined this week by Beth Simone Novak, who directs the Governance Lab. She's a professor in technology, culture, and society, and affiliate faculty at the Center for Urban Science and Progress at New York University's Tandem School of Engineering and a fellow at NYU's Institute for Public Knowledge. Previously, Beth served in the White House as the first United States Deputy Chief Technology Officer and Director of the White House Open Government Initiative. We discussed the Governance Lab and the types of problems it is helping governments solve, as well as the ways this approach can assist leaders with the challenges they confront with COVID-19 and the economic recovery. We also discussed her experience as New Jersey's first Chief Innovation Officer, including some of their COVID-19 projects and job assistance services. I am so excited to welcome Beth today. Beth, thanks so much for joining us today and talking a little bit about your work with the Governance Lab. John, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. So first of all, just tell us, what is the Governance Lab? So the Governance Lab, or the GovLab, as we like to call it for short, is an action research center housed at New York University at the Tandon School of Engineering. We're a nonpartisan group that works on applications of innovation, technology, and data to improve governance. And we're an action research institute because we work exclusively with public partners on the solving of public problems. So that is to say, even though we're based at a university, we don't do work in theory, we work in practice. So our vision of research is engaged work with real communities on solving, or at the very least, tackling hard and wicked problems using tech data and innovation. One of the things I love that you've said in the past and it initially led me to reaching out to you for a whole nother set of work is that you've said that data won't solve our problems, but asking the right questions will. Why is that? Well, I have to confess, even though you're giving me credit for it, there have been people like Albert Einstein, as you, as you know, <laughs> who've said things like, you know, if I only had one hour to save the world, I would spend 55 minutes defining the questions and only five minutes finding the answers. So data is obviously, and we see this at no more, you know, point more important now than during this pandemic is one of the great assets we have at our fingertips today to solve problems. But I think the, the notion is that we have to be careful that if we simply start with the data, you know, and every day now we're deluged with numbers of how many deaths and how many infected and how many tested and how many this and how many that, it really misplaces the emphasis. What we have to start with is the question of what is the question we're trying to solve? Or put another way, what's the problem we're trying to solve? And define that in terms of the problems that matter to real people. So that's looking at problems both at the individual level, in other words, how people in real communities experience them, looking at problems also from a population or community and neighborhood level, what some people call the meso level or the meso level, really sort of across communities, what are the challenges that we're facing? And then more systemically or broadly, what are those problems And then we ask the question of what data can help us to answer those questions. So just to give you a quick example of something that's been in the news a lot lately, you know, people have looked very generally at the issue of coronavirus infections and deaths and then have come to realize, gee, we needed to be asking the question about how do we solve the problem of long-term care facilities. If we ask that question, it leads us to look at a very different set of data to create a very different set of models than just looking holistically across the whole population at coronavirus writ large. Similarly, we have to be asking questions about 
what's the impact on specific groups and specific populations, so that again, we can identify what data we need and more importantly, what kind of interventions and solutions, if you will, we can actually develop that will work for different people. Makes so much sense. So, I mean, thinking about that in the context of the economic recovery that we're all sort of facing us, how can governors and mayors be sure that they're asking the right questions to ensure that their economic growth is widely shared in their communities? Well, I think your question already begins to answer itself, right? So we value what we measure and we measure what we value. So if we're really concerned about helping to promote economic growth and recovery, we really have to understand which groups are affected and how they're affected, as you've implied with the question. So, for example, we need to not just be looking at unemployment across the board or business closures across the board. We really have to be looking at which business sectors have been most impacted. We have to look at what kinds of workers are most impacted in order that we can really develop data-driven approaches to really managing the crisis of unemployment and the economic recession that we find ourselves in. So everybody's reeling from this twin crisis, the public health crisis and the economic crisis and looking for solutions. And I think what we're seeing that we need to do is to really dig in and understand with greater granularity how are different sectors affected so that we can come up with different kinds of solutions. There is no magic bullet. There's no one size solution that fits all. And in fact, as we know, with any kind of wicked problem, frankly, there are no solutions. The best we can do is to pick out interventions that are going to improve people's lives and keep at it in a continuous process of problem solving. And that means really trying to look at the data in a much more granular way, looking at, again, whom we can help and how we can help them and trying to develop more specific solutions and interventions in a more agile way. Got it. Speaking of data, you had mentioned that one of the core areas of focus for GovLab is the area of data and collective intelligence. What does that mean? Like, why is that important? Yeah, so we, as I've talked a lot now about for the last couple of minutes about data, and I think, again, the pandemic has revealed how important data is, the notion of evidence-based decision-making. If we didn't realize its importance before, and there was a bipartisan congressional commission in 2016 that acknowledged and called for and more data-driven and evidence-based decision-making, we definitely see that now. But at the GovLab, we like to look at two different kinds of innovations, if you will, to improve governing. One is obviously the what data can do for us to understand problems and develop solutions at that sort of more macro level by understanding, you know, impacts on given populations. But you can't understand a problem simply by looking at data. You also have to talk to human beings. It's a kind of human sort of data. But if you want to understand how people at an individual level experience a problem, you really have to engage with individuals in communities. If you want to understand with what intensity problems matter to people, then you have to engage with people. And frankly, to come up with good ideas and solutions, what we've seen more and more is that we actually have to turn to people in communities as well as to experts of different kinds, whether it's academic experts with credentials and PhDs or whether it's simply people with lived experience of a problem. People also have solutions. They don't just have knowledge about the problems. And that combination of data and collective intelligence can be really crucial to developing solutions to problems, but you can't do one without the other. Makes so much sense. What are some examples of collective intelligence in action with cities? So there's a city in Colorado called Lakewood, Colorado, and it's a suburb of Denver of about 150,000 people. And it, you know, had, like many cities, you know, not big cities, had a single city planner. 
a guy named Jonathan Wachtel had been the city's single city planner. And he was hearing from citizens all the time, we want to do more about sustainability. We want to do more for the environment. And he was frankly getting very tired of saying, we'll look into it. We'll look into it when we can get there. You know, not a lot they could do with one or one and a half people actually involved in doing the work of city planning. So instead, what he actually did is he said, let me actually turn to citizens themselves and let them help with developing the solutions. So he created what is now a 20,000 person strong sustainability workforce. So instead of one person in City Hall, he has residents working on developing solutions and actually implement them in what they call the Sustainable Neighborhoods Program. So the program encourages residents who have passion, who have ideas, who have know-how to actually develop projects and to implement them with the support of City Hall. So now instead of you know, again, one person doing the job, he has 20,000 people doing the job. You have eight neighborhoods in Lakewood, about 20% of the city's population that have actually joined in the program. They've developed over 400 resident-led projects. And now you have multiple cities who've copied the model and are using, again, what I would call collective intelligence, what we might also call citizen engagement, or just groups of people working together is a simpler way of putting it to kind of really expand capacity. So it sounds like a really powerful tool to tackle some of these wicked problems that you were just saying. And coming out of COVID, I mean, there's a never-ending set of wicked problems facing mayors and facing governors. How can mayors and governors use and support collective intelligence to tackle the, the challenges we're facing as part of this recovery? Well, it's really just that. It's recognizing that what people sometimes think about as citizen engagement and view as a kind of nice to have, but that we don't have time for, especially in the midst of the crisis that we're going through. Or maybe you do this sort of, you know, listening session or town hall with the odd citizen is to recognize that groups of people, especially when we can work together so much more easily now at a distance and online that we've all gotten so used to, can really be helpful in genuinely solving problems. And it doesn't have to be just the everyman in the way it is in Lakewood, Colorado with ordinary citizens. It can be, but it can also be, you know, a network of scientists. So, for example, I've been involved in launching a project called Ask a Scientist together with the Federation of American Scientists. And we built this tool, which you can find at COVID19.FAS, Federation of American Scientists. So COVID19.FAS.org. And what's back of that site where you can go in and ask a question about the coronavirus. So what is the coronavirus? Is there a vaccine? What are the treatments? You know, should I watch my counters with vodka? Should I be drinking bleach? You can go in and ask one of those questions. And what's back of that is a network of over 600 scientists, volunteer scientists who are helping to answer those questions. Federation of American Scientists has another project called the Science Policy Network. They have similarly hundreds of scientists helping to write questions to assist staffers on Capitol Hill ask hard questions in upcoming hearings. Like next week, there'll be a Senate hearing where they're interviewing witnesses from the FDA. Those staffers look to FAS for their help in defining and writing better questions than staffers could do by themselves. So in other words, there is hard work that people will do if you ask them and where they'll engage in helping to do things that mayors, that governors, that others may have trouble now doing with the public workforce alone. At the GovLab, we've set up together with about a dozen organizations a free course that we've set up explaining some of these models. So the head of Federation of American Scientists is on there talking about how they created, how we created together this Ask a Scientist project. And you'll find about a dozen other models. That's at COVID course. 
www.thegovlab.org. And what we did was to really rapidly, in about two weeks, put this together. Again, it's a great example of collective intelligence. A dozen different organizations just rapid fire trying to explain some of these models since it's not necessarily intuitive to know how do I get 600 scientists helping me work on a problem? How do I actually get, you know, a group of volunteer students working on doing something? How do I get 20,000 citizens helping build sustainability programs? There's no reason anybody has to know that kind of intuitively or do it without some kind of training. So we put up that free course. Just amazing. I mean, it's amazing too, the speed at which you were able to, to do some of this. Are there other ways to use that sort of ask a scientist capability in other areas that government is tackling? Yeah. So I think, you know, what I love about this project is it's this kind of Q&A or what some people call a chatbot. Now, chatbots are often don't have humans behind them. Sometimes they're artificial intelligence. Sometimes they are humans. One of the things that I've been involved in and a flag that I wear two hats in this case. So I am the director of the governance lab and a professor at New York University, but I also have a role as the chief innovation officer for the state of New Jersey. I serve in the governor's cabinet and I run the office of innovation. One of the things we try to do is to bring some of the same principles to bear that we talk about in the GovLab for state government in New Jersey, which is my home state. And one of the things we've done, for example, there is to build a business hub, to build a chatbot, which is essentially a program where you have people on the phone, online, answering questions for businesses that are calling in with questions. And so we have tens of thousands of people calling in, getting answers to questions. What we can do, just as with Ask a Scientist, is whereas a human may answer that question the first time somebody emails in or calls, then we can add that question and answer to a knowledge base, which then the next time somebody comes along, they can find that answer. It reduces the work. Again, then we don't have to you know, man a hotline quite as much or have quite so many people answering the phone or answering email, but more information is available to the public. We're seeing lots of examples like that as a creation of what we might call wizards or chatbots or basically just things that answer people's questions. And the combination of collective intelligence and tools and the technology to help capture that wisdom of humans and make it more accessible to more people is a great way to do things like answer people's questions about what benefits are available to them or about what they can do about their child's education or where they can find a government service or where to get tested or the myriad questions people have during this crisis. You just mentioned that you have this other hat in the Office of Innovation. What is the Office of Innovation in in New Jersey and what are some of the other projects you're working on? Oh, boy. So the Office of Innovation is a small office that was established by the governor two years ago to really create, first and foremost, an agile tech capacity for government. So to have the ability, an ability that came in very handy during coronavirus to allow us to stand up citizen-facing services very quickly. So that means when we needed a one-stop shopping information hub or portal or whatever you want to call it, in other words, one website that would allow people to find a consistent source of information about the virus, we were able to stand that up in partnership with a private sector partner in about 72 hours. And that site has now in a state of eight and a half million, we have five and a half million users of that website. And it was really important to be able in this crisis to turn around something so quickly. We were able to build, for example, a jobs website in 72 hours. So it wasn't perfect the first time we did it. But, you know, with staggering rates of unemployment in New Jersey, we're up, you know, over 15% in terms of unemployment the ability for us to put up listings, working in partnership again with businesses to make available jobs in essential businesses, whether it's supermarkets or drugstores that needed filling, 
to make that available to the unemployed and to do so in a way that's, you know, quick. Countless things like pages for medical professionals, volunteer, contact tracers to sign up for those jobs. So there's just a need to have a shop that could actually turn around quickly and actually build technology where it's needed. The ability to do things like provide data and predictive analytics, especially in this crisis, and to have the capacity to do that, not working just on our own, but working in collaboration with, you know, some of the best computer scientists and machine learning experts at universities. So in other words, to be able to collaborate with people outside government is really key to how we do our job, whether it's the private sector or whether it's university professors or, frankly, to run the website that I mentioned. We work with dozens of students from universities across the state who help us to translate, if you will, legalese and government speak into plain English so that citizens can have easy access to clear information is one of the things that we do. And we wouldn't be able to manage the volume that we have to cover without the help of students from across the state. So that kind of collaboration is another thing that we do. In other words, we're a small shop that works in an agile way using data and technology to provide better services to citizens and also doing some policy work on really helping to grow the tech and innovation economy for the state. So amazing. I know we're coming right up to time. So just one last question. I mean, you've had this amazing career, an opportunity to work with federal, state, and city leaders tackling, as you've said, wicked problems, big challenges. What are some of the lessons learned that could help inform the challenges state and city leaders are facing right now? Oh boy, standing on one foot. You know, we've seen at least right now, and I think a lot of people listening, if they're either in the public sector or they're working in and around public problems in some way, have seen how everybody has pulled together and really done things working in a very different way. A lot of uses of data, a lot of collaboration, a lot of working across boundaries that we've seen as a result of the crisis where things that would have taken a year to do even three months ago, now are getting done in a few days because there's just such an overwhelming necessity. So I think, you know, the big lesson learned here is to reflect on what we're learning about the need for working across borders and working across sectors, the need for using data and collective intelligence to really so change the way that we work in order to be more effective at solving problems. And again, I don't want to make that sound easy. These ways of working, whether you're in the public sector or whether you're in the private sector, whether you're in a university or sitting at home, really just wanting to volunteer and help out, it's not intuitive always how to do these things. And so I think more learning, more investment in learning and training and in these new innovative ways of working is really necessary if we're to really continue to adopt these new kinds of practices and really continue to be, I think, as effective as we've seen so many people be in terms of responding to challenges. Look, this pandemic, this crisis is huge. And that's the other big lesson is nobody's going to solve coronavirus. Nobody's going to solve unemployment. We have to bite off manageable pieces. We have to identify specific problems that we can take action on wherever we're sitting, whether it's, again, as an individual or as an organization, as a company or as a government leader, We have to pick problems and then we have to just hack away at them, applying the tools that are available to us today in the 21st century to really do what we can to pick and event interventions and implement them, things that will improve people's lives. And again, it's not always the ideal. It's not always perfect, but we just need this process of continuous improvement and continuing to work. Beth, it's just amazing. Everything you're doing, all the multiple hats you're wearing, especially at this moment of crisis. And so... So appreciative of you taking time to just share all of your great work with us. 
Thank you so much and all the best to you. John, thank you so much for having me.